Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Cattle Baron Cigars. Cattle Baron Cigars has a rich, natural, aromatic, classic tobacco flavor. Made with the finest tobacco, perfectly blended for the most pleasant, satisfying, long ash you can buy anywhere. Cattle Baron Cigars has consistently scored an excellent in the 90s on their reviews. For more in-depth information on Cattle Baron Cigars, listen to our Brian Mussard podcast episode and visit cattlebaroncigars.com. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. On today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire, we get the opportunity to visit with a ranch that has been at the top of my list since I considered hosting podcasts. If you've grown up in the cattle business and especially the purebred business, you're very familiar with this ranch. They belong to the pioneers of Performance Group, but are continuously innovating, surviving, and challenging the status quo in the seed stock and cattle business. I'm excited to hear their story, and I think you will be too. Welcome Greg and Cody Jorgensen of Jorgensen Landing Cattle, the brands and barbed wire. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for having us, Jim. Yeah, I'm excited about it and and looking forward to it. And so I think most people probably know of Jorgensen Landing Cattle, and if they don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourselves and your family and introduce uh, yourselves to some of the people that might not know who you are. Sure. So uh, my name is Cody Jorgensen. Uh, this is my dad, Greg Jorgensen, here with us today. Um, Jorgensen Land and Cattle is an extremely diversified family operation, and there's four of us that are owners. My dad is an owner. Uh, my uncle, Brian, my dad's younger brother, Brian, is an owner. Myself. And then Brian's son, uh, Nicholas, is also an owner. So there's four of us um, that own the business. And uh, Nicholas and myself would be a fourth generation of Jorgensons that would own the business. And um, the fifth generation is well well on their way. And we're happy to um, someday have those as part of us as well. But just a little bit about Jorgensen Land and Cattle, I guess. It's three-faceted. One, I guess uh, we're really, we're committed to being in the Black Angus bull business. Um, this year, we're going to merchandise just a little over 5,000 Angus bulls, Black Angus bulls across the nation. Uh, so really, that, that is our widget. As part of that, we, we farm about 15,000 acres. About 80% of those acres are acres that we use uh, to create feed for all the bulls that we have here. And then the third part of our business is that we're in South Central South Dakota and blessed to have um, a, a decent wild bird population, wild pheasant population. And we do have a lodge and we do host pheasant hunters basically from September till Christmas. And um, so, you know, in a nutshell, I guess when we, when our family looks at an acre of land, we, we look at it threefold. One, we obviously, we want to be able to farm that acre of land like it's supposed to be farmed uh, with respect to soil health. And also on that same acre, we'd like to be able to graze it at some point in time throughout the course of the year. 
And then, of course, the third thing would be to add some sort of what I call agritainment or production, agricultural entertainment. And in our world, then that would mean we we're able to hunt dozens on it, right? And so there's a lot of businesses in production agriculture that could surely do one of those three, perhaps two, but it, it is kind of rare to see a, a family-owned operation, multi-generational operation, and do all three of those on an acre. And so that's that's kind of what we look at. And and then along with that, um, everything that we do, you know, with respect to the farming and soil health and also the cattle, we try to add some sort of value to it, like a value-added business piece or business model, if you will. And uh, so so that, you know, that opens up a lot more to, to discuss about. Yeah, no, I like the uh, I like the agritainment. I might have to adopt that for the podcast. I think my podcast is agritainment. So I know that you guys have a just a rich uh, history in in the cattle business, but especially the Angus business. I don't know, I don't know if there are many Angus pedigrees, and I wouldn't know them obviously as well as you guys do. But from a performance Angus standpoint and performance cattle standpoint, is there? Are there pedigrees even today that that wouldn't trace back to a Jorgensen bull somewhere in their pedigree? I mean, there's a gosh, I mean, that's just that's a that's a pretty rich history, right? We actually researched this a few years back. And you know, when you look at them, you know, especially 10 to 15 generations back, if you study it far that that far back, it's gonna be hard to find a pedigree that wouldn't have a bull that either directly come through, you know, our cow herd here that we manage or uh, something that we used or owned from another breeder at some point. In fact, I think it was about 95% of all the pedigrees will have either a direct Jorgensen bred bull in it or one that that dad or grandpa owned uh, early in the 60s and 70s that we used, you know, to help our herd. So it's a high percentage of the pedigrees. Wow. 95% of the Angus pedigrees today would have some, some tie to the Jorgensen name and Jorgensen land cattle. That's, that's amazing. I think it actually was 94.6 to be right honest with you. <laughs> that's pretty good. Either way, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to get too, uh, too caught up in that four tenths of a percent difference there. Um, so, so why don't you, why don't you guys take us sort of through the history, you know, how you got started, how you ended up in South Dakota and and how you got started in that Angus business, and then what drove you to be that influential in the early Angus uh, population and, and those cattle. I, I can give you a brief history, and actually, with this history, it'll give you where the determination and the grit uh, kind of came from. But uh, my grandfather uh, came over from Denmark uh, when he was 16, and he didn't know the English language. And he was too old to go to school, so he had to self self teach himself how to read and write. And uh, ironically, in his retirement, that's what he did: was read books. And he'd get a pile of books from the local library once a week, and he'd read uh, a whole pile of books. I remember that as a kid. Um, he he was uh, one of those self determined individuals, and. Uh, he was a Lutheran, and my grandmother was a came from a very strong Catholic background. And in fact, when they started dating, the Catholic family were throwing rocks at my grandfather because they didn't really want him to marry my grandmother. So they ended up eloping. But uh, before that, just before that, uh, my grandfather had homesteaded in Myrtle, South Dakota, which is about roughly 
60 miles from here by the way the crow flies. He had started a homestead there and he was actually on one of the very last cattle roundups in that country in, the, in those days. Well, then he, he went back to White Lake, South Dakota, and that's where his father had settled. And uh, of course, he fell in love with his grandmother and they eloped and snuck off to Dallas, South Dakota, and she applied for a, uh, a homestead because you can only do that once in your life. She was the actual owner of the homestead in Ideal, South Dakota. And in the process of moving here, they had to cross the Missouri River. And in that process, they, something happened, some kind of an accident, and they lost most of their material goods that they had left White Lake, South Dakota with. So when they came to Ideal, South Dakota, they basically had nothing. And of course, you know, there was no water, there was no uh, buildings. They, they had to do all of that stuff to uh, survive and, uh, and build a life. So I, I think, you know, we, it's hard for us to understand just how tough they really had it, you know, because they had to haul water and they had to boil the water. They had to do a lot of things just, just to survive from day to day. Of course, Dallas at that time, Dallas, South Dakota, was the end of the railroad, and that was oh, roughly 30 miles distance. So that would be all of a hard day just to get to Dallas. And then eventually the railroad moved into winter South Dakota, and that then that was only 16 miles, cut it in half. So when you say they had to haul water, I mean, you know, some of us don't uh, maybe understand the the landscape and stuff like that i mean they just, they just didn't have running streams or anything like that in the area and they had to haul water or what how do, what does that mean greg well they they had to they had to find fresh water at first and then eventually there was a few people that would dig a well and so then the neighbors would all sh- share that well and there there were several deaths in in that era from uh you know, water poisonings and whatnot. If the water wasn't any good, you can they just they just didn't know better. Just and just to chime in, if if you were to dig down for water in ideal South Dakota, it's fifteen hundred feet. Wow. And that and that, and that water is artesian water. It's high sulfur, high iron, really not very good. So where they homesteaded, the water was was a very was a huge challenge. Huge. They, they would dig some shallow wells, but, you know, they had a dry year and the shallow well would go dry. So it was, it was, water was, a, has always been an issue in, in Tripp County. And, and of course, that's, that what prompted my father to move forward in the, in, to get a rural water system going. Anyway, um, they had nine kids, the uh, grandpa and grandma had nine kids. And uh, there was a lot of people in the 30s moved off this country. In fact, you know, the population went down uh, every year because it was just a tough life. So a lot of people just couldn't sustain it. And there was a family on every quarter to start with, except for the uh, Indian land here and there. But uh, they had nine kids. And uh, one of the stories that, that I kind of remember is their oldest son, Lee, ended up getting very, very sick when he was 13 years old. And so my grandmother had just had a child, and I believe it was my dad. I'm pretty sure it was my dad. 
And she ended up taking Lee uh, on the train to Omaha with the, with the baby and spent about six weeks down there watching him die of leukemia. And so they lost their oldest son, you know, and of course the rest of the family back here, uh, you know, those are just hard times when you think about it. And then of course she had to bring him back on the train and be with the baby and stuff. So it's sometimes just hard to imagine what they went through just to sustain life. Oh yeah. I can imagine. I, I, I think about those sometimes and just, you know, how sometimes we get irritated if there's a line at the gas pump or, you know, there's no toilet paper on the shelf at the grocery store. And I mean, gosh, what they had to go through uh, at that time just to, just to survive. And then, you know, taking a, a baby and a sick kid on a train all the way to Omaha and being there for that, that amount of time had to be challenging just how tough the people were back then. And that's really the fortitude of America and their culture. I mean, that's, you know, those type of people's what b- built this country. Yeah. And at that time, those early trains were steam powered. So they had to stop every 10 or 11 miles, put water in to, to go the next 10 or 11 miles. My grandfather, then he, he traded his uh, homestead up in Myrtle for a, a kerosene powered tractor, a steel wheel love tractor that could pull seven plows. And so he loved that thing. The top speed was three miles an hour from Myrtle to Ideal. <laughs> Some, sometime in that time frame. And then he did a lot of commercial plowing in, in this area, which my brother just kind of grinds his teeth at to think about it because he's, you know, he's a no-till no guy, which is good. But back then there was no such thing as no-till. So when did the sort of cattle come in or, or was that your father or when did that sort of happen? Well, uh, they, they always had some cattle. Uh, my dad, uh, his job as a little kid was to graze because at back in the early thirties, dad was born in 24. So the early thirties, he would have been six or seven. And there was a lot of pasture ground available. And so his job as a six and seven year old was to herd the cattle all day. And he'd have to, you know, maybe drive them three, four miles away, let them graze and then bring them back so they could milk them. And that was his job growing up to graze cattle. He didn't really start the, the purebred cattle business till the uh, mid 1950s. But to get there, there was three boys, three other boys and five girls. And uh, as soon as World War II hit, Actually, right in the late 30s, they uh, they moved off the homestead. They let it go back for taxes and moved on to the place that we're currently on, which was uh, homesteaded by the Napai family from Illinois. You've probably heard of the Napai truck bodies across the nation, and that's the family that homesteaded them. And they actually begged my grandparents to move up to the place because they couldn't find anybody that would rent it that would take care of it. Of course, then the war hit. Uh, two of the other boys went to war, and one of them was killed uh, as a navigator in a B-17 during the war. And Uncle Don was uh, in the Merchant Marines, and he you know, was in the bottom of those brand new ships that were full of asbestos. And of course, back then, nobody knew the 
the ills of asbestos, but it it shortened his life too because of it. But anyway, the war was a boom for agriculture right after the war. There's uh, things went really well. So my grandpa and grandma went back to Illinois. They were still very, very close friends with the Napites. In fact, I remember the Napite boys coming out and hunting clear into the late 60s. But yeah, they, they bought the place from them then, and, uh, you know, that right after the war. Okay. So that's, they, they would have bought it from them who homesteaded it and... And then it became theirs, and and your this is still your grandfather and grandmother, and and uh, if I heard you right, there were nine kids, so four boys and five girls. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so then your father would have been in that age, and and in the family, and and when they after the war and and agriculture started booming, and they bought the ranch, he would have been involved then. Yeah, he heavily involved because the other two boys went off to. Like the war, he stayed home. Uh, by then, my grandfather was pretty old and was somewhat beat up a little bit because he'd had a few close calls in his life. Anyway, dad, his personality, he, I, I've always said this story that dad never had to work for anybody in his life. So it was hard for him to understand what it was like to work for somebody because it was kind of hard on hard on Brian and I, and, uh, sometimes some of the employees, but, uh, anyway, that, that's just as part of that lifestyle of growing up that way. Right. Right. When would he have sort of taken things over and, and really got the passion to improve beef cattle and that type of thing? Uncle Don came back from the war and they became partners, Jorgensen brothers. Of course they got into the hog business then. Uh, and they grew that. They started buying a few cattle. He bought his first uh, registered Angus, I think, in 1955. And slowly but surely uh, realized that he had to do something different, that the, the system that was currently being used to identify uh, better genetics was through the show ring. And he just thought there had to be a better way. And so he became close friends to uh, people in the ABS. Uh, organization, American Breeders, and of course, uh, Dr. Chris Stinkle was a geneticist from SDSU, became a really close friend, and several other people that started giving him, you know, he started learning some things about genetics and learning things about how you could do genetic selection differently, and because he was so heavily involved with uh, ABS early up, and back in those days, you had to own a third of the bull to register animals in the Angus breed, he ended up uh, owning some of those top Angus bulls that the American Breeder Service had in their stud. And so that that kind of grew, that relationship grew. And as he became more performance orientated, more and more people started seeing the positive effects of genetically selecting through performance. Uh, his our cattle, I should say ours, but at that time it was his cattle, became very, very popular through ABS. Uh, we had not only in that stud, but other studs, we had quite a few bulls over the years from the 60s on through to the, into the early 70s. So some of those famous older bulls that, Cody, you would have found in that, you know, 94 4.6% of the, of the population. I mean, what, what would some of those famous bulls 
be that some of our Angus breeders might recognize today. And yeah, so you you'd be talking about uh, Rito one forty nine, uh, Rito seventy two, and of course our our Rito seven hundred seven, which you see a lot today. Of um, certainly, but the seventy two bull and the one forty nine bull really kind of I would say what put us on the map. In addition to that, um, um, band one hundred five. Uh, he was a bull that we actually didn't use very heavily here in our own herd, but the industry went crazy over him because he's kind of a big game changer with with low birth and uh, you know some high carcass characteristics. Band 105 would be the sire traveler, and so that's that's kind of how um, I would say that's that's where a high percentage of cattle would would lie. One other comment I'd like to make uh, in addition to dads, I think looking back and studying you know what Grandpa did. Uh, fundamentally, when I, when you when you talk about performance testing, you know he had, he had zero tools. He had no all he really had was a concept. And so what he did was he he'd take a group of weaned calves and form a contemporary group as we know it today, and study those calves against each other. Right? He would ratio or index those calves based on their age and and their weight. And and come up with an animal that was you know five percent above average or ten or identify the ones that were below. That's not you know that's not new. Uh, you know I, we kind of take it for granted today. But what he did one step further back in those days is he actually tied that calf then and its performance back to a mother cow through a cow card. So you could look on that on the damn production or a cow card. I remember in Grandma Mary she wrote every every dang one of them. She and writ these cow cards on each calf that that cow had throughout the course of her life, and then could could study you know how many calves that cow had and how you know how above or below average they were in the herd. And and to me, it it you know it's intuitive for me to think about that. We got so many unbelievable tools that help us get there. They they had they had a, maybe not even a calculator. Right. You know, they just did it all. Yeah, and we're keeping them almost like a Rolodex or something of those cows. How many head would they have been running back then, roughly? When we first started AI, which was in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. we were probably uh, breeding 35 to 40 replacement heifers and probably had uh, 100, 120 cows. Yeah, I think the, the very first bull sale was in 1972, 50 years ago, and I think there were 75 bulls in that sale. So at that time, we would have close to 200, I would say. Right. And they were keeping those those records by hand early on and on that many animals and, and able to, to differentiate them. I mean, that's a real gift, you know, that, that they had and a passion, obviously. So take us from, from recording those and, and some of those top bulls to, you know, as it grew and the success you had, I mean, and, and increased cow numbers and... And I remember even some of the early discussions on feed efficiency and some of those things. What was sort of the natural progression next? Well, one of the stories that very few people uh, know about is uh, my dad actually was, along with a a gentleman from Florida, his name is coming to me right now, but uh, they had a class action lawsuit against the uh, Angus Association to get open AI. Because back in 19, I think this occurred in 67 or 68, you had to own a third of the bull. And there was a fair amount of uh, swapping bulls, a lot of 
just kind of fuzzy, fuzzy math going on uh, with some of those really, really very top bulls. And uh, they created a class action lawsuit against the Angle Association to get open AI, and they won. And uh, at that time, the Angle Association was not in very good financial shape. And by being able to take a simple piece of paper and selling it to the purebred breeder for $10 and letting the, which is an AI certificate, and letting them that, that individual sell up for 15 or 20 or 25 or more, uh, completely changed the dynamics of the aimless breed because finally the really top bulls got a lot of use. And that, that's one of, one of the probably the biggest changes for the Angus breed at the time because back in those days that's when all of the exotic uh, cattle were coming in too and very very competitive i mean simmental the charlet the, you name them just lots of them and they they just uh, really had a I don't, I don't know if you call it a positive effect but a, a really total effect on on changing the whole industry at that time yeah, no, I mean, it, a bunch of the Angus population now uses AI, right? And there's a lot of breeders that, that don't even turn in bulls anymore. And, and to think that they started that and, and were able to be at least instrumental in, in the beginning of that is pretty amazing. Yeah, he had a lot of foresight and a lot of vision, um, definitely a pioneer. We, you know, as we all talk about him, he, I, I think that single-handedly would have saved the Angus breed. And that's why the American Angus Association today is very active compared to some other associations, right? And kind of changed their life. Yeah. And I don't even know that a lot of the other ones, you know, charge for AI certificates and things like that even. So, well, that's pretty cool. So you're growing, you're, you've now opened up AI to other individuals, which had to also help you guys and help, help sell more semen on, on some of your bulls and, and some of those things as well. Right. It did. Yes. It was a game changer for the breed, but also for us. We had, uh, you know, like I say, in the 60s and early 70s, we had bulls on a lot of the major studs. And so uh, that AI certificate was just kind of a benefit. Uh, my dad was never one to, you know, really try to force a lot of money out of people. So, I mean, we didn't, we didn't overcharge on the certificates and stuff. He just wanted a lot of people to be able to use the best bulls out there. And apparently they did with with the success and all the cattle that trace back to uh, the Jorgens and pedigrees. So uh, the cow numbers are growing, and I assume you, Greg, at this point, come back to the ranch, or you know, when when's your involvement sort of come in? I graduated from college in '74 and had been married for just uh, eight or nine months, and so uh, came back in, became uh, a partner in nineteen. 78, I, I ended up buying my uncle out over a 10 year period. And so then dad and I were the partners along with our wives. And it just, you know, the, the 1980s were pretty tough. One of the big changes was people started chasing frame. They started chasing uh, frame scores instead of performance. And uh, not only the English breed, but almost all the other breeds too were just. It was a chase to see how big a frame bull you could get out there. And uh, dad just, I mean, dad just fought it. He just said, and, and I agreed with him. and said, these cattle won't work very long. I mean, the cows are going to get too big. They're not going to 
adapt to the environment. I mean, we were just, he just knew there was a lot of things that was wrong about that. Of course, the industry tasted it. And we really had always put our emphasis on functional cattle that would work for the average cow-calf operator. Yes, we had a lot of purebred breeders that bought bulls from us over the years. Our main business, and as I grew into it, uh, was truly the commercial cow-calf operator. So in the 1980s, you know, it was a pretty tough time. There was a lot of people that didn't survive it. So you just, I mean, prices of cattle and stuff were down. It was just a, it was just a tough time. But we were still growing. We grew the hog operation at the same time. Then one day, the swans truck drove in the yard. And we had just sold some fat cattle. And it was terrible. We took a terrible beating on the price of the cattle. And this truck driver gave me, I was walking across to go eat dinner. And, and he gave me a flyer. And in that flyer, there was some, like, I forget the number, like $15 steak. And it just hit me wrong. I just said, we've got to do something. This isn't working. How can they sell $15 steaks when we can't even make a living selling live cattle? And that was the very beginning of uh, Dakota Lane. At that very point, I said, we got to do something better. So I went around to some of the neighbors, and there was a group of eight of us that pooled a few dollars together and started this meat company called Dakota Lane Meat. And I don't know if you wanted me to. I was just thinking how how we swerved into this and and that was that's how it started and this would have been in probably 1984. So you had uh, you had a partnership formed then and you guys had a history of innovating, right? And so it seemed like a way that to innovate and progress and move your cattle and your product forward. Is that accurate? Yeah, one of the things that at that same time, you know, the consumption of beef was going down really quite rapidly. And one of the problems was is there was so much variation in the product because now we had 25 or 30 different breeds of cattle. We had all different weights and sizes of the carcass. There was just zero consistency from animal to animal. And the consumer, and they, they finally did some research on this. Back then, there was one bad meal out of five, and that's 20%. Right. You know, that were, were a bad experience. And so we just figured, hey, we got to do something about that. So we started uh, feeding intact males because we were good at feeding bulls. And so we thought, well, let's, you know, lean meat. We got to have lean meat. That was the big thing, big discussion back then. And so we thought, well, if we feed intact males, we're not putting implants in them. Uh, we get the same effect because we have their natural hormones. Uh, all that, all that worked really, really well. So that's the beginning of total um, Dakota Lean Meat. And in, in just so I can chime in, I, I think the the family's fundamental behind Dakota Lean Meats was to provide another marketing alternative for our bull customers. Our customers, cattle. Yeah. Just like you would think of a value-added proposition today. It was the same concept. Same. That's all we were trying to do because, you know, I really believed if we could put a little more money in our customer's pocket, they would easily come back and buy more bulls from us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. And so how how did that grow? And how many years did you start into that? And and how did that grow for you guys? And was it successful? 
Well, we had an opportunity to buy a small packing plant in Winter, South Dakota, and uh, it did grow. We grew quite rapidly, a huge learning curve. And uh, as it turned out, it was uh, really an inventory management nightmare because uh, if you had too many intact mails, you know, you had to take, you took a real beating if they had to go to the packing plant. That was always a challenge. Too much hamburger, not enough hamburger, too many steaks, right about about. It was an inventory management night. And that kind of fell on my lap in a way. And it was, that was probably the reason that after we had gotten so big that we as a group had decided, hey, this is not for us. We need to let someone else own this and let them run it. And then, We'll just supply cattle to it. And so after, I don't know, we must have run it probably six or seven years, we had this gal come in and we thought it was making money and it turned out that it wasn't. And so we ended up firing her. And of course, she became somewhat vindictive, I guess, and uh, and had some political clout from her family some way, somehow that they uh, convinced the government to to do an undercover investigation of us. Thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. And that was the end of part one. You won't want to miss episode two as we hear about the downfall of Dakota Lean and how the best day of their lives turned into the worst. For our producer, Carlos Cheraboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbedwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast is sponsored by JMAR Genetics. For semen on our newest herd sires, JMAR Jehovah 8M11 and JMAR Jubal 5P01, please contact Jim Johnson at 434-546-2341 or visit jmargenetics.com.